So we're, we're looking particularly at verses 16 to 20 tonight. I just read some more to put it in its wider context. And we're continuing this commission that the Lord Jesus gave his 12 apostles to go into the local area and preach the news of the kingdom to the people of Israel. Phil told us last week that these men were his official commission representatives. They were an extension of the ministry of Jesus. So they were doing exactly what Jesus was doing. They were going out and they had his seal of approval. They had his authority. And uh, what was the term you used, Phil? I wrote it down last week because I really enjoyed that sermon. They were the commissioned outlet for Messiah-stamped truth. When Jesus sends them out with his backing, with his authority to go and preach the word. But as Phil told us last week, their message would not be universally accepted by people. There will be some people who would hear this message, they would come with this message of peace, this compassion, this compassionate message, peace be unto this house, and people would close the door in their faces and say, no thank you, this is not for me, I don't want to hear And if you remember, they were told to to go elsewhere and, as it were, brush the dust off their feet as a sign to these people who had rejected the word of God. And I think that's a symbolic act, brushing the dust off to say, you know, we've we've preached the word, your peace, the peace we offered you has returned to us and now we're going elsewhere, hoping to find people who will listen. I think the implication is that, that some people when they heard the word of God, would believe and be saved. That's why Jesus sent them out into the harvest field to preach the word in the hope that some would respond and believe. As I said, some would simply refuse to believe and refuse to accept the message. And they would shut the, door, the doors of their houses and the doors of their hearts in the faces of the apostles. But we find out today that that's not the end of the matter. Because there were some people who would not let the matter rest. There were some people at that time when the apostles preached this word and came doing these signs to, to authenticate the message. They wouldn't just say, no thank you, that's not for me. But there were some who would actively oppose the message and the messengers. And Jesus makes it clear that his servants can expect not just people believing, not just people refusing to believe in some cases, but people who actively oppose his message and actively oppose him in effect as well because he's the one who's commissioned these men to preach. You look at verse 16, we get the first indication that Jesus is telling his disciples that they're going into a hostile territory. I'm sending you out like sheep among wolves, says Jesus. Of course we know, don't we, there are many times in the Bible where the imagery of sheep is used for God's people. It's an easy to understand picture, especially if you live in a society where sheep are all around you. Last Monday I went up to Chanctonbury Ring on the Downs and I was up there all by myself praying and I was surrounded by sheep. It was nice. The lost sheep of Israel, the people they were to go to, the people of Israel, to go and preach this message. What are sheep like? 
pretty stupid. They're sheep are not the most intelligent animals, but they're, they're harmless. They're peaceable. They're not aggressive. They've got a certain innocent quality about them. Sheep are also rather vulnerable, aren't they? Vulnerable to attacks. You set your dog off in a field of sheep. If you've got a fierce dog, the dog can ravage the sheep. If you live in a country where wolves are common, wolves were the bane of the shepherds' lives, weren't they? You can imagine how many shepherds went to the fields in the morning or whenever and found their sheep had been killed by wolves. Fierce creatures that just come in and rip them apart, savage them, ruin the flock. The Lord Jesus did not send his servants out as some kind of power group, did he? I think it's very important to realise that. There have been times in history where Christians have comprised some kind of powerful group and have used their power to coerce people and to cause people to suffer and to, to brutally persecute their enemies. But the Lord Jesus envisages this group of men, his, his apostles, going out, not as oppressors, not as a power group holding the keys of power, but as innocent sheep-like people. And like sheep, they need to be aware of the pitfalls and dangers around them in this hostile environment to which Jesus is sending them. So Jesus says, be on your guard against men. Be on your guard against men. Don't be naive. Verse 16 What does Jesus tell them to be like? Having compared them to sheep. Well, he says, this wonderful way that Jesus has of teaching. He says, therefore, for this reason, be as shrewd as snakes and as innocent as doves. I think in in our folklore, the epitome of a wise animal, a wise creature, is always a wise old owl, isn't it? Sitting in the oak tree. At the time of Jesus, and in most of ancient literature, the epitome of a wise creature was a serpent or a snake. A bit strange for us, but that's how it was. Ancient belief, going back to the Garden of Eden, where the serpent was more crafty, more cunning than any of the creatures that God had created. Those words in English, craftiness, cunning, have negative connotations, don't they? Nobody likes a crafty person. Nobody likes a cunning person. But that, kind of, that, that quality of cunning and craftiness can also be used in a positive way, can't it? In terms of shrewdness, wisdom. What is shrewdness? Shrewd, shrewd, shrewdness is a funny word, isn't it, in the English language? What is shrewdness? What does it mean to be shrewd? Is it the same as intelligence? It's a kind of intelligence, isn't it? Is it the same as wisdom? It's a kind of wisdom. What is shrewdness? What did I write down? It's the ability to assess situations wisely and to respond in a way that will lead to the best possible outcome. I mean, I'm sure there there are better definitions in the dictionary. That's, That's what I understand shrewdness to be, the ability to look at a situation, to judge it, and then to respond in a way which leads to the best possible outcome. 
I only heard on the radio this week that snakes are responsible for so many deaths a year in, in different countries. But snakes, snakes are shrewd, as far as I understand snakes, having had not much contact with snakes. I found a slow worm in your garden once, but it's, not, it's actually a lizard, not a snake. He was quite shrewd as well. Every time I watch these survival programs, when so-and-so is in the jungle, when he comes across a snake, you see that snakes are very good at defending themselves. And snakes are cunning and clever, and they, they can read a situation, and they can respond in a way which enhances their own chances of survival. That's the strength of a snake. You know, snake is not easily defeated. Snake knows how to get around problems. But the shrewdness of the snake also leads to a negative side of its character. Is it any wonder that snakes are loathed and despised and feared all over the world? Because that shrewdness the snake has, that self-preservation instinct, makes it aggressive. And its cunningness can be damaging to people that come across it. But Jesus says, in a a sense, you're to be shrewd as the snake. But he also says we're to be innocent. That word innocent there means unmixed, guileless. As innocent as doves. I don't know about you, I can't envisage a more harmless, innocent creature than the dove. I've got a, a collared dove that visits my garden and it just doesn't do much. It coos. And, it, and it, it just flits around. It doesn't do any harm to anybody. It's nice to look at. It's a peace, peaceful creature. We're glad to have it in the garden. It minds its own business. The, the, the innocence of the dove makes it attractive. You have them at weddings, don't you? People release doves and all that kind of stuff. But it's also weak because it's vulnerable to predators. Its innocence is its strength, but also its weakness. And therefore Jesus very, very wisely, very wisely says Christians ought to combine the best of these characteristics. We would never put these two creatures together, would we? They're completely polar opposites. But Jesus says if you combine both these characteristics, the positive aspects of these will cancel out the negative aspects of the other. Shrewdness without innocence leads to nastiness and cunning and and, and aggression and attacks and violence. Innocence without shrewdness leads to weakness and vulnerability and foolishness. If you combine the two, you've got an ideal combination. Very powerful, potent combination. Somebody pointed out I can't remember who it was, that Christians are not to be gullible simpletons. But neither are they to be rogues either. Rogues, you know, an unpleasant, nasty person. Jesus would have his servants have a quality of uprightness and purity and innocence about them. They should also be shrewd. They should also be wise. Someone said this, we should be as innocent as doves, we may not harm anyone, and cautious as snakes, that we may not be harmed by anybody else. 
Jesus goes on later in this passage to say, you know, when you're persecuted in one city, run to another city. There is a time to run, to flee persecution. There's a time to face persecution. This quality of shrewdness and innocence together enables a Christian to discern what the Lord's will is in the situation and to act accordingly. Without both those qualities, you can easily become one or the other. You can become an aggressive, abrasive Christian, or you can become a very foolish, naive Christian who's just deceived all the time. I read a book recently about evangelical Christians in the Soviet Union, places dear to my heart. I know some of the places written about in this book, Kiev and places like that. Fascinating to see how these Christians operated in a communist society, in a totalitarian state. For those Christians, daily life was fraught with obstacles and pitfalls and problems, potential problems. You name it, bringing up children in the fear and admonition of the Lord, evangelizing, running churches, things that we take for granted for them, all those things were full of danger, full of risks. You never knew when you were going to be in trouble with the authorities. What options lie open to Christians in a society like that? Well, of course, the most obvious is just to get your head down and don't do these things. Don't teach your children. Don't do evangelism. Just get on with your life and live your lives like everybody else. But these people love the Lord. These people meant to be obedient to him in their generation. And that meant evangelizing. That meant running churches and preaching the gospel. When I read this book, I just sensed that these Christian people, and I'm sure this is true in many societies today where there's persecution, where these Christians were so wise as well, so shrewd, so you know, intelligent when it came to understanding the times they lived in and what was expected of them and how they could operate, continue to operate without unnecessary problems. Yes, they did run into problems, but they didn't court controversy. They, didn't, well, they weren't provocative. They were wise. They were shrewd. There's also a beautiful innocence about them as well. How they operated and managed to, to keep going and keep their churches going. In some ways they were modern citizens. People tried to people tried to criticize them, but they looked at their lives. These were the hardest workers in the whole factory. These were the best citizens. There was a moral uprightness, a purity and innocence about them, innocent as doves. And yet they weren't stupid either. And these people, I read about these Christians, they took every opportunity to share the gospel with outsiders. As I said, they weren't provocative. They didn't do things to cause unnecessary problems for the church. Sometimes they spoke up. They saw fit to speak and use the rights that were guaranteed to them by the constitution of the land. They said, I have a right to speak. I'm a citizen This is afforded to me by by the Constitution, by the law. And other times, they kept their heads down and they let things slide. They didn't didn't pursue things. I think that's the wisdom Jesus is talking about, the ability to read the situation, to know what the Lord's will is, to operate and to continue operating. One thing they never stopped doing was serving the Lord Jesus and preaching the gospel. And I have to lend you the book to find out more. 
And uh, I don't want to embarrass our friends, but Victor and Judith, when you were sharing the other day about your work in Turkey, I see this quality in you as well. It would be very easy, wouldn't it, in Turkey to get into all kinds of trouble for preaching the gospel. But you have this, this quality of boldness, but love and graciousness about you and innocence. And you don't shy away from challenging situations. But also you don't go looking for trouble. Because these things would just hinder the ministry. If, if we were to go and be provocative and lack that innocence, be abrasive and hard and all these things. And I know what you were saying the other day, you almost, you're looking for worthy people, people whose hearts are open to respond to the gospel, as Phil taught us last week. And when, when you see that openness, then you, you can speak to them. And that helps you to win friends and go on serving the Lord in a challenging place. I think, friends, what we need to to remember as Christians is that we don't live in easy times for the gospel. It may not be like Turkey, it may not be like a communist state, but we do need to be careful. We need to have wisdom, we need to have vigilance, we need to be on our guard, we need discernment, we need shrewdness. Some of you know only too well what it's like to be the only Christian in the workplace. Sometimes you may have to take a stand. Other times you may have to keep your heads down. We're not to be crippled by fear. We're not to be stopped from serving the Lord because we live in a hostile society. We're to continue. But we do need this grace. We need this wisdom. We need this innocence. I just wrote this comment at the end. Misplaced bravado can lead to all kinds of problems, unnecessary hindrances for the gospel. Sometimes I wince, and I'm sure you do, I I cringe when I see how some Christians carry on. Just rude and horrible, unpleasant. We need to have that innocence about us, that people will look at us and say, these people, these people are innocent, even if they do persecute us and disagree with our message. Verse 17. I want you to notice here how how Jesus predicts persecution in no uncertain terms. What does he say? Be on your guard against men. They may hand you over to local, local councils. They may flog you in their synagogues. On my account, you might be brought before governors and kings as witnesses to them. He doesn't say that, does he? He says, you will be. You will be. This is not just a precaution. This, you know, this might possibly happen, but probably won't. Jesus is quite definite. If, you, if you're going to serve me and preach my gospel, you will encounter hostility at times. And I think it's rather wonderful that Jesus is honest about this with his disciples. He doesn't try to deceive them, make out it's going to be easy. Being a Christian is not like going on a you know, club 18 to 30 holiday where everything's laid on for you. But it will be challenging and tough and it will require costly obedience. That was true on that first mission. That's true for all generations. Isn't it a tragic thing, dear friends? Isn't it a sad thing that people shut the door on the gospel? 
shut the doors of their homes and shut the doors of their hearts. But how much more tragic when these people who come with compassion, preaching the gospel of peace, find that people are so provoked to anger. What, what harm have they done? How tragic to be in such a place where your heart is so hardened against God that when the gospel is preached, people come with this message that you are provoked to hostility and anger. And yet that is the case so often. And to to such an extent that you're prepared to use any means necessary to stop the people preaching this message. Of course, this is exactly how the Lord Jesus was treated in his lifetime. I want to encourage us tonight. The Lord Jesus is not asking us to, to, to do anything that he wouldn't do himself or anything that he hasn't done himself. What does he say in verse 25? If the head of the household has been called Beelzebub, the devil, how much more the members of his household? The Lord Jesus himself was insulted, mocked, ignored, rejected. What does it say in Hebrews? Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Dear Christian friend, if you do ever suffer persecution, be it mild or severe, remember the Lord Jesus Christ has suffered far more than you. He understands. He's not asking you to do something he wouldn't do or hasn't done. Let's look at the nature of the persecution Jesus told them to expect in verse 17. First of all, we find out the persecution will be at the hands of the local religious authorities. So he talks here about the local councils. You'll be handed over to local councils and they will flog you in their synagogues. When he talks about local councils, he's not talking about Brighton, Hove City Council. He's talking about the local gatherings of the Sanhedrin or the, not the Sanhedrin not the national Sanhedrin but the local um, rabbinical and synagogue councils that met in various local places these were like the local courts there was no separation of the spiritual and the secular and the civic in Israel and these were the courts that dealt with minor misdemeanors and the breach of the peace and things like that so they had the power to flog Mr. People who committed crimes and misdemeanors, minor things like that. That was the public, the, the, the accepted punishment, public flogging in the synagogue. It's a sad fact, isn't it, that sometimes, all too often, persecution of Christians has come at the hands of religious people. The sad thing is, sometimes people think they're offering a service to God by persecuting Christians. You've only got to read something like Fox's Book of Martyrs to see that. How supposedly Christian people brutally punished and persecuted Bible-believing Christians. But Jesus says these things will happen to you and that will not be the end of the persecution. It will not be the end of the church. It will not be the end of the message because it will go to a whole new higher level. What does he say here? Verse 18. On my account you will be brought before governors and kings to be witnesses to them and to the Gentiles. Because the apostles would not be silenced by local persecution in the synagogues, everything would be ramped up. They would end up appearing before the civic authorities of the land, civil authorities. 
we see here, governors and kings and to the Gentiles. Of course, the Romans didn't care about Jewish spiritual matters, but they did care about the peace, maintaining order. Was it the Pax Romana in Palestine? And if something was seen to be a potential cause of trouble, they would have come down on it like a ton of bricks. Remember that the apostles, when they preached the gospel, they weren't troublemakers. They weren't stirring up, fomenting rebellion. They were just peacefully preaching the gospel. And yet their enemies opposed them so violently it caused a stir and that caused these men to be brought before the Romans, the Gentiles, the Jewish leaders, kings and so forth. But when did this actually happen? I want to say something about the ongoing mission of the apostles. Two things Jesus says here in this passage help us to realise this is not just talking. Jesus is not just talking about the imminent upcoming mission of those 12 men. He is talking about that, but I think he's looking beyond that to subsequent generations of Christians and ultimately to all generations of Christians. When Jesus predicts that there will be suffering and persecution for the sake of the gospel, I don't think there's anything to suggest that the actual the 12 apostles during the lifetime of Jesus actually experienced this. I could be wrong. If you read the gospels, we don't actually realize about, we don't, we don't read about them being hauled in front of the synagogues and flogged, and brought before the Gentiles. All that happened later. We can read about it in the book of Acts. In fact, Jesus himself, in his lifetime, he was opposed and he was rejected, but he wasn't flogged, and he wasn't beaten, and he wasn't dragged before the rulers until right at the end of his life when he went to the cross. So that's one thing that indicates to us that this is not just for those men at that time. Jesus is looking forward to the time of the book of Acts, the early church, and also beyond that, into the future. So we mustn't think this is just for them and not for us. There's another thing here which tells us this is not just for those men at that time. Jesus tells them, first of all, you know, it doesn't say, don't, don't go to the Gentiles, go to the lost sheep of Israel. Verse 5. But then in verse 18, when he talks about them being brought before the Gentiles, that seems to suggest that there's going to be a greater commission, a great worldwide ministry that goes far beyond the scope of the confines of Israel to all the nations. In fact, we, we read about it, don't we, the Great Commission, go into all the world and make disciples of every nation. That, that Great Commission of Jesus put an end to this first commission just to go to the lost sheep of Israel. It says, yeah, go to the lost sheep of Israel, but also go to all the world. This first mission of the twelve was not job done, was it? The Gospels are full of hints that this, this mission of Jesus, for that time, was for the, for the lost sheep of Israel. One day would go beyond those borders to people of every tribe, tongue, and nation. That's why we're here today, most of us. So, as I said, these passages are not just, this teaching is not just for the 12 disciples then. Jesus is obviously envisaging a greater ministry to Romans and Gentiles and the persecutions that would come later after his lifetime. I want to say something briefly. It's amazing how fast time goes. I want to say something briefly about God's purposes in persecution. You might ask the question, people do ask the question, why on earth 
does God allow his, his servants to be persecuted? I want to put it to you tonight that persecution is not meaningless in God's sovereign plan and purposes. Look at verse 19. Sorry, verse 18. On my account, you will be brought before governors and kings as witnesses to them. Notice, first of all, they're there on his account. They're there on Jesus' account. They're there commissioned by him with his authority. They're on Jesus' official business. He says this, doesn't it? You will be brought before them as witnesses to them and to the Gentiles. I think it's extraordinarily powerful for the apostles to stand before these men. We read about it in the book of Acts, don't we? When they stand before these, these powerful rulers and they testify and they say, Jesus is alive and he is coming back to judge the living and the dead. And in spite of powerful threats, they were not willing to turn away from the gospel, to turn away from the Lord Jesus, to turn away from the commission preaching the gospel in the highest places of the land. Isn't that a powerful testimony to the, the, the truthfulness of their testimony that Jesus was alive? They, they, people wouldn't have stood like that, would they, had it all been a big hoax, had it been a deception. Every time they stood there and they were persecuted, they said, I'm not going to turn away and I'm not going to be silent. I'm still going to preach my risen Lord Jesus. People, it was, it was an enigma, wasn't it? It was complete. It was baffling to the authorities. What is it with these people? They will not shut up. They will not be silenced. Powerful. Witness. This is true. We believe it. You can, you can cut my throat or hang me up or crucify me or burn me or throw me to the lions, but I will not turn away from this because it's true. Also, they testify in another way as well. If being a Christian and preaching the gospel had meant a comfortable and easy life, people would have said, well, look at those Christians. They're only, only in it because it's good for them. A bit like Job, Satan accuses him. He only worships you, God, because you blessed him. God has to demonstrate this by taking this all away from Job to show that Job truly did love him. In the same way, Christian persecution only goes to show that these Christians will not turn away because Christ has done such a work in their hearts that they, they cannot go anywhere else. There's nowhere else to go. They would rather die than turn away from this because they know the Lord Jesus. So persecution is, is a very strong statement to the elements of God, to the, the enemies of God, saying, you know, this, these people believe this, this is true, they're convinced of this, and this is this is worth looking into this is worth investigating the claims of this Jesus Christ and Jesus says here in this passage that persecution of the apostles served a very useful purpose because it brought them into the highest places of the Roman Empire didn't it places they would not normally be admitted to these fishermen from Galilee they were preaching all over the place in front of rulers and kings, powerful men. Paul's obedience, he wasn't part of the original 12, but he was an apostle commissioned by Christ. 
His obedience led him to the heart of the Roman Empire where he testified boldly to his Lord. Also, you can read about it in Acts. He testified in front of Festus, King Agrippa. What did King Agrippa say in Acts 26? He said, Paul, do you think you can persuade me to be a Christian in such a short time? See, we look at persecution, don't we? Oh, this is a terrible thing. What a tragedy. And yet God, in his sovereign purposes, is putting his people in the heart of palaces and courtrooms and amphitheaters, all for the sake of his name, as a witness, as a testimony to the gospel and to Jesus Christ. What men purpose for evil, God uses for good. I think about those dear brothers and sisters in in Northern Ireland, the the Ashes Bakery case. How that must have been a very stressful time for them. It's a, a mild form of persecution, but I'm sure for them it didn't seem mild. Their reputation was on the line. They stood for the Lord. They honored him. They were winsome. They were innocent. They were shrewd. And the Lord vindicated them. And it was a powerful testimony. Just to finish up, let's look at the promise of the Lord for those who are commissioned by him, sent in his name. Remember the 12 apostles, the ones that Jesus sends out. They were very ordinary men from the provinces, working men. They weren't educated, they weren't powerful, they weren't from influential families. Jesus tells them, you're going to testify to my name in front of rulers and Gentiles and kings. How would you feel? Yeah, me too. What a daunting prospect. My goodness, really Lord? Am I going to stand before the king of the land? I I wrote this down, this may sound facetious, but it'll be like a load of builders and, and car mechanics and whatever, standing before Richard Dawkins and the British Humanist Society or the Chancellors of Oxford University or the Privy Council or the Royal Academy or something like that. Ordinary working people brought before the great and the good. Except, of course, the great and the good in those days, they weren't so great, they weren't so good, but they, they had the ability to chop your head off or with very little accountability. You think, humanly speaking, these powerful men are going to take them to the cleaners, aren't they? They've got a leg to stand on. Jesus understands this. He knows what we're like. He, knows what, he knew what they were like. He knows what we're like. He says, don't worry. He says, make, it, make up your mind not to worry beforehand. That's what he says in, in Luke's account of this. When they, when they arrest you, not if they arrest you, when they arrest you, do not worry about what to say or how to say it. Do not worry. Make up your mind beforehand. In a settled position, I'm not going to worry about this. Easy to say, hard to do, but possible with the Lord Jesus. He wouldn't say it if it weren't possible. Would they be humiliated? Would they not have words to say, words of wisdom, to answer their critics, their enemies, their opponents? Jesus promises at that time, you will be given what to say, For it will not be you speaking, but the spirit of your father speaking through you. What a comforting thing. On that time, don't don't worry about it. Don't stress out about it now. You can't do anything about it. If you're called to that, the Lord himself will give you words and wisdom to answer your critics, your enemies, 
your, your opponents. To answer, answer them in this gracious, winsome, innocent, but shrewd way. That's a promise from the Lord. We see this in Acts chapter 4, don't we? When One of my most favorite verses where they look upon the apostles, they see they're uneducated, ordinary men, but they take note these men have been with Jesus. And in fact, although they, they can't see it, they're still with Jesus. Jesus, more accurately, is with them, standing by their side, giving them words and wisdom to answer wisely. doesn't mean that their, their problem's over. doesn't mean they're going to be let off the hook. But there's a boldness, a witness... Here, I believe, is one of the most, most greatest and most comforting truths of this whole passage. Dear friends, if the Lord Jesus commissioned his servants and sent them out on his business to be his official representatives with this gospel that saves, it's unthinkable that the Lord Jesus himself would not remain with his people if they were called to account for his name. What do we think the Lord would do? Just abandon them? Just leave them to it? Leave them to their own devices? Of course not. If I were a spy working for the government, which I've never, never done and never planned to be, and I was arrested and put in a prison in Siberia or Iran somewhere, the government, no doubt, would give, it, give me its full support. I'd like to think so anyway. It would support me. Because I'm, I'm their official representative, maybe unofficial you know, a spy, espionage. But the government would support those who go in their name. How much more the Lord Jesus won't just abandon us. He won't abandon his people. He'd rather give them the words and the wisdom. Not to win the argument, but to be a witness. Just to finish up, I think the days we live in are increasingly difficult for Christians. We're not suffering terribly, but we have to be careful. We have to be wise. That's a much-needed quality in the church. We all need it. Wisdom. Shrewdness. We can't be naive. We're not in a playground. We're in a battleground. There are casualties all around us. We're not to live in fear. We're not to be cowed into silence. We're not to stop doing what the Lord has called us to do. We can operate in this society, and we can thrive and prosper in God's grace in this society. Just as, as Daniel did at the court of those kings. One day you, you may well run into trouble with the boss for taking a particular stance at work, taking a stand on some issue. One day we as a church may have to face the hostile media because of our position. I know Christina Summers knows all about that. Maybe we'll run into problems because we, we, we do evangelism on the streets and people don't like it and people complain about something we've said. All that's possible in this day and age. But we're not to live in fear. We're not to worry. We're not to stop. But we do need to be gracious. We need to be wise. We need to be innocent. We need to keep on trusting the Lord that he will help us in those difficult situations. Remember what Jesus said at the end of the Great Commission. I am with you always to the very end of the age. And dear friend, he will be with you and he'll be with me, whatever we're called to. But let's pay heed, take heed to this and remember what the Lord Jesus said to them and speaking to us as well.